Welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that help power their emerging markets business strategies. Hello today, my name is Mark McNamee and I'm the practice leader for Europe here in our London office and I'll be moderating today's interesting podcast. So today we'll be discussing the rise of European populism and its impact on businesses with our analysts covering Western Europe, Athanasia Kokinoyeni, as well as our analysts covering Central and Eastern Europe, uh, Martin Belchev, as well as myself, of course, Mark McNamee, the practice leader for Europe, where I focus primarily on Russia and CIS markets. Uh, for herself, Athanasia has recently published our Western Europe quarterly market review for the fourth quarter, uh, which has focused on South Europe. Uh, and Martin has recently published the Central Europe Regional Outlook for 2019, uh, both of which, of course, further build upon and examine uh, our view of European growth trajectory in the rest of 2018 and primarily in 2019. As a reminder to our clients, these reports, as well as the rest of our content, is, of course, available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. So great, uh, let's get into the discussion here. Guys, looking forward to this. We've actually been planning this for several months now, so uh, good, we're, we're getting around to it uh, in light of all that's been occurring in Europe uh, over the last couple of years, but in particular, the last couple of, of weeks uh, in particular, and this week uh, is, is actually no different. Um, I wanted to do this podcast because, of course, populism itself uh, really surprised uh, a lot of people with how quickly it came about and we saw the political ramifications of populism starting really in 2016 uh, and, and into 2017. And we're interested in doing this podcast because now in 2018 it seems like this has sort of been put on the back burner but of course these concerns are still there and populism is of course still very relevant and will continue to be relevant and will continue to impact policymaking in the coming years. So it's important we, we address it now. Um, that risk is still there this week has proven that of course you look at say italy uh, and its likely uh, budget clash with the eu over uh, deficit uh, over the the proposed deficit in, in in the italian budget for 2019 obviously that's an out sort of an a, a clear ramification of populism um, with the co the populist coalition government there likewise brexit we've actually seen decently positive news based upon the leaks of a put, uh, hopefully uh, what turns out to be a deal between the EU and, and the UK government that'll help avoid a no-deal Brexit. Uh, likewise, when we look into your region, Martin, protests in Poland, Bulgaria, etc. So the list is, is more or less endless, and there's been a lot of developments uh, even very recently, including today. So um, I wanted to talk about two things in particular, so uh, we'll get into these themes throughout uh, our conversation today. Um, of course, the political developments, as we mentioned in Italy, Spain, of course, also a coalition government there, some populist issues there, Catalonia, etc. Uh, elections in Hungary even earlier in the year, we see protests in Romania, uh, protests in Poland even this week obviously populist policies in Poland as well. Um, so I'm interested, Athanasia, to, to start with that. Sort of two questions, I suppose. In light of all of these developments, right, um, has this changed our view much? 
Uh, and, and also, obviously, we're oriented towards what is the impact on the business environment? What does this mean for clients? What does it mean for demand, for opportunities looking to 2019? Um, EU growth was a positive surprise in going back you know, to 2017. Um, and a lot of the risks that we we're concerned about uh, have sort of abated and subsided over time, uh, become more low likelihood uh, across the region. So I suppose that both of those are questions for you. Are these risks still relatively low likelihood, uh, as, as we had uh, told clients for the last couple of years? Um, and likewise, have any of these political developments that we've discussed here, Italy, Spain, Brexit, et cetera, uh, has this fundamentally changed our view for 2019? Hello, Mark. So broadly speaking, uh, just to start with your question on Western European growth. So overall, we remain positive for Western European growth for 2019 and beyond, um, despite some relative slowdown that we've seen already, uh, of course, compared to 2017. So overall, the risks, all the risks that you mentioned uh, remain low likelihood for 2019. And uh, although we, th we see that populism has risen uh, in 2018, uh, it is very unlikely to trim growth going forwards. Okay, interesting. And just for some historical reference, we, rem we all remember, th remember the, the panic clients felt in, say, late 2016 after Brexit. Then you're moving into 2017 and the, the Dutch elections, the French elections, and there's so much concern over, say, Le Pen, the National Front taking power. Uh, we avoided those in 2017, which, as you mentioned, that helped drive much stronger growth, stronger investment in particular in 2017, with some spillover carryover effect into 2018. Now we're seeing a little bit of the, the weaknesses, the structural weaknesses coming back. Uh, some of those, of course, revolve around Italy in particular. Uh, when we consider what the populist movements have done there in terms of, you know, the political shifting, uh, you know, the shifting tides there. And now we're seeing the impact on the economy potentially with this new budget that's been unveiled. So uh, let's look at Italy more specifically now in terms of, you know, how much of a threat is this actually? This has been a concern for, you know, for the last five years sort of on and off. Um, you know, this is the big elephant in the room. What do you what do you see for Italy for 2019 then? Yeah, so let's pass now uh, to Italy. Uh, so in Italy, we have seen actually the anti-establishment uh, leftist five-star movement to win the elections back in March uh, 2018. And uh, since then, they're leading a populist coalition together with the far-right Northern League. Uh, so that's an interesting combination to see <laughs> exactly. there. Um, so for this coalition to govern, actually the populists significantly watered down the platform. Uh, so before the elections, they said different things, and now they're kind of implementing different things. Um, so one of the things uh, that they changed was their commitment for a Euro referendum before the elections. We, we don't expect to see this in 2019. Um, and also, um, they back down or on uh, some extreme government spending policies uh, that, they, that they had proposed. Uh, so we do think that they will remain moderate, uh, let's say relatively, uh, during their, ter their uh, term. And uh, eventually we expect to see Rome uh, to compromise uh, with uh, the EU on a smaller deficit target for 2019. So if not, uh, so if we don't see this compromise and we expect this in the next couple of days or so, 
This increases uh, the risk of a direct clash with the EU, uh, as well as we might see new elections coming soon. So um, I would like to stick on the positive, uh, let's say, uh, takeaways from this coalition. And one is that actually that this government unites the far left and the far right of the Italian parliament, which distinctively represents the south and the north of Italy. And this could result in more engaged policy making in general in the future. Interesting. Yeah, and, and I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, this is. It's a very interesting dynamic, of course, in Italy. New elections are possible. I think it's uh, pretty low likelihood for 2019, though, so I, I would highlight that. And secondly, this hodgepodge coalition seems impossible, but actually we've seen something before even in, in your homeland, Athenasia, <laughs> in Greece. So it's possible there's another driver for unification between these two disparate parties, of course, with very different agendas historically, um, in, the, in that what happened in Greece and that coalition staying together. These populist opposition, exactly, <laughs> and these opposition populist uh, parties actually became less populist once in office. And secondly, they were so eager and happy to finally have the authority to make policy. Finally, that maybe their support base and the, and the politicians themselves are are willing to make some compromises that would have seemed incomprehensible prior to them coming into power, right? Exactly. Which is what we saw in Greece, right? Exactly. Um, so interesting. So. Um, that's good. I'm glad you finished on a positive note there with Italy. Um, but still, more broadly speaking, do you think that people are now maybe underestimating the effects of populism going forward? As I mentioned at the beginning, major concerns in 2016 and 2017. In the last nine months, we've seen people talking less and less about it, it seems. Do you think that's appropriate or where do you stand on this? So maybe let's put it that way. I do believe populism will continue to exist in the EU. We will still continue to see a populism trend um, because actually populism is innate in the EU architecture itself. But we do think that populism will very minimally affect growth going forward. And that's especially when the economy is on the rise. So this will still be the case for the coming years we, because we do uh, still expect positive growth out of Western Europe uh, in 2019 and going forwards. So we don't expect uh, any kind of disruption from the rise in populism in Western Europe. So first, in the EU, uh, maybe we put some things uh, into perspective. We see the left-wing populism um, uh, growing in the south, particularly in Greece, Portugal and South Italy. And uh, in comparison, we see far-right populism in the north, like in Germany, Austria, Netherlands, and North Italy. So when countries or regions with diverging economic dynamics and different interests coexist within one economic union, which is the European Union, it's impossible actually not to see any rising voices of protest. And that's exactly what is EU populism. So if we try to think about it, uh, we had years of economic austerity that actually galvanized the left-wing populism and actually the uh, migrant crisis that we saw particularly in 2015, but 2016 as well, galvanized in particular the far-right populism. And of course it produced the uh, AFD party, Alternative for Germany party uh, that we saw. Um, so overall, we can say that the EU structural weaknesses can be blamed for the unemployment, 
uh, we've seen, um, uh, especially after the crisis or the financial and debt crisis, and the migration levels, the increase in migration levels for the far-right populism. And it is generally unlikely that EU employment will go below 3% or that migration will be completely eliminated in the EU anytime soon. So in other words, we do think that populism is here to stay in Western Europe. So moreover, moreover uh, we have seen that populism doesn't affect growth, as I mentioned in the beginning, especially in the good times, in the good economic times. So currently, unemployment is on the decline across markets. We see a slower decline of unemployment, but still unemployment is on the decline across Western European markets. And uh, the economy can serve as a pretext, if we could say, for the surge in populism. Right. <coughs> Very interesting, right. Um, and, and this is something, when you look at the populism, uh, the structural issues within the EU, right, the inability to sort of drive growth back to stronger levels, reduce unemployment at a quicker pace, that helped, of course, really drive the populism that we've seen. And we're now seeing that those lingering, the effect of that uh, in policymaking now and in the shifting uh, tides within the, uh, the political uh, environment across these countries. Uh, but this doesn't necessarily mean that we have to see another Brexit of, of, of another EU member or, the, or we should be, you know, creating a list of in order of which countries would be exiting the EU. Uh, these things, at least for the next several years, are likely very manageable uh, within the current structure of the EU, though there are clear you know, economic structural problems that, that exist. Um, so now let's, let's sort of play devil's advocate a little bit here, uh, Athanasia, and then we'll turn to you, Martin, uh, in a minute. Um, but under which scenario then would you see you know, maybe an exacerbation of populism in Western Europe then? What would be the, maybe the conditions that sort of drive that to maybe more dangerous levels? Yeah, so that's a good question, Mark. I would say if we were to see a new financial or debt crisis or a very acute economic crisis coupled with a migrant crisis, that's where we would see actually the exacerbation of populism trend across Western Europe. But that's a very unlikely scenario. Right. So in this scenario, we would see, of course, unemployment to accelerate, especially in the South, is what we saw during the financial debt crisis, and the migrant influx to surge, and perhaps, uh, why not, Turkey cancelling the uh, refugee deal. Right. That, those are good points. I mean, and this really highlights what would be the drivers of, say, in the next several years, more, you know, say, another potential member of the EU trying to exit these are the things to be looking at, right? So basically, Turkey, make sure EU doesn't you know, somehow <laughs> break up this deal in some way. Uh, and then look at Italy, which is what we're looking at currently. Uh, and this is obviously a, a major focal point, such a core member of, of the EU, um, and ensuring that they can maintain sort of, you know, conservative, relatively conservative budgets um, uh, and, and not cause any major problems. So I think we, it's clear to say, I'd be interested to hear what you think, Athanasia, uh, in, the, in the next couple of years at least, uh, that we shouldn't be particularly concerned about uh, another member of the EU leaving and, and the gradual disintegration of the EU. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, I think definitely. Okay, good. <laughs> in the next years. <laughs> yeah, in the next several years. In good. the next several right. years. I just want to calm our clients uh, <laughs> listening to this, but that that's sort of the consensus here yeah. uh, as well. So. Great. Um, good. Now, Martin, let's uh, let's turn to you and, and looking more a little bit at Central uh, and Eastern Europe here. Um, so, 
Reiterating sort of the final point Athanasia made, it seems our clients shouldn't worry too much about populism in Western Europe over the next couple of years. Um, what about Central and Eastern Europe? Obviously, we've seen a lot of issues, even in, in your home country, Bulgaria, this week with some protests, Poland, Hungary, Romania, um, populist policymaking, more protests, divisions between urban and rural uh, uh, communities. Um, so on the whole, just start off, you know, sort of broadly speaking, um, how is this whole populism trend affecting uh, the CE markets? Um, hello, Mark. So it's a pleasure to be on the fo- uh, on the podcast. But uh, first of all, I just want to kind of set up uh, the, the, the tone here. Uh, it's first really important to point out that uh, populism in Central and Eastern Europe is not something new. Actually, centrist populist parties have been um, dominating the political scene for a while now. Um, what's really new in this case, and that has been happening in the in the last eight years, is those populist parties essentially turning. Um, to the right, and they feel emboldened by rising populism um, just uh, globally. Um, however, what we've really seen is, is somewhat uh, similar to um, the positive picture uh, outlined by Atanasia in Western Europe, in the sense that populism hasn't really affected um, e- economic growth. It has had some impact on the uh, operating environment and has complicated the regulatory environment. But this is something that I will um, elaborate um, a, a bit further on. Uh, it's also important to kind of distinguish uh, the protest movements going going on in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, in the case of Bulgaria, for example, it's not specifically against the populist government. It's rather um, economic conditions. In the case of Poland uh, that you previously mentioned, actually the the uh, far right march we saw um, on Sunday was basically um, sort of supported by the government, but it doesn't. Um, it, and even though we actually saw some big headlines talking about the end of democracy and how Poland is further sliding to the right, we should um, sit through those and really uh, figure out what's going on uh, in the region. Now, talking about uh, the negative impacts of populism, as I said, we haven't really seen any impact on um, economic growth. Uh, however, essentially, the um, effect of populism can can uh, affect businesses specifically and our clients uh, in, in two major ways. The first one is through policy and predictability. And we've really seen that in, in Poland and Hungary with the implementation of certain sectoral taxes, such as uh, retail tax and bank taxes government favoring local businesses instead of MNCs. In you know, many cases, those policies haven't uh, been implemented, but it's still in the, in the uh, political discourse, creating this really un- un- unpredictable uh, environment. Um, on the, uh, on the uh, uh, additionally, uh, essentially another way the, the companies can be uh, affected is through the undermining of the judicial process and transparency just um, in reality undermining uh, business confidence and investor confidence in the longer longer term. However, there are some positive uh, impacts as well, and it's really important to, to also mention this here. And that's that those governments have really prioritized social policies, and they have helped um, consumers increase their purchasing power, which has really benefited some of our B2C clients. On the other hand, of course, this has also taken away valuable resources from uh, public investment, which has then hurted uh, B2G uh, demand. And in short, you can argue that it's a, it's a matter of uh, set of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, um, interesting. So uh, the other thing I would mention um, is that currencies likewise haven't been really affected in Central uh, and Eastern Europe by this populism. So we've seen you know, some major protests, particularly in Romania over the last couple of years, deposed prime ministers. Um, we've seen obviously uh, populist policy making in Poland and other issues, Hungary fights with the EU, Poland's fights with the EU. Uh, but, we, but the currencies, economic realities, you know, the fundamentals are overriding those you know, the drop in maybe sentiment towards the market from a political point of view. So it's important to know for clients that currencies have not been affected and have been very strong in general, not not particularly volatile either over the last couple of years, despite all of these uh, sort of political uh, situations developing there. So um, interesting. So going from your final point, it, it that's interesting to note that populism, uh, of course, brings risks, but also in some cases some opportunities. With particularly in the case of Poland, as a prime example, increased social spending, obviously something our, our clients can be tapping into. Um, how do you see, uh, in particular, uh, early this year, uh, EU budget changes, uh, and, and obviously EU funding is extremely uh, important for these countries for their development over the last couple of decades, well, the last ten years, roughly, right? Um, now, with what was announced by the EU, the recent changes in the new EU budget, uh, how would that impact populism, I suppose, in Central Eastern Europe? Um, and uh, I suppose, again, being devil's advocate here, just to uh, propose the topic, could this trigger an EU split even as a result? Um, well, um, your observations are um, obviously quite interesting. Can the key point here is that actually the what the EU budget does it, it, it is that it reduces EU funding for the next funding tranche for um, especially for the uh, Visegrad countries and transfers some of the money to um, southern Europe now obviously the response of those governments has been um, populist rhetoric further uh, political conf confrontation with the um, with the EU especially considering that uh, a lot of them who are essentially set to lose up to 5% uh, of their GDP uh, in terms of EU funding uh, access. However, I really doubt that um, these developments could actually trigger any uh, exit uh, from, uh, from the EU. Uh, and I think that's highly unlikely. Obviously, as you mentioned, those countries do rely on EU funding uh, for, for public investments. Uh, for and also they rely uh, on just being members of you for for their um, export markets. Uh, as such, even though you do see this emboldened rhetoric, you might see um, news coming about um, ex uh, uh, upcoming exit from you by Poland or Hungary. This will not actually happen. Uh, a key point to mention here as well is that the recent budget actually tried to sneak. Uh, it's not exactly sneak in, but essentially tie access to funding to the rule of law. Um, this might create some more um, interesting dynamics and, and just um, continue to, to fuel that uh, political com confrontation. But it, 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 we have to wait and see how that play out because essentially it might be a way for the EU to sort of tie in um, well, a, a certain condition that then can be re uh, renegotiated so those countries can actually back down on those budget cuts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so moving away from the EU budget then, uh, obviously there's a lot of discussion about Eurozone reform, particularly in the wake of all this populism. There's more of a driving need to you know, amend the current structures uh, within the Eurozone. So 
how will specifically the, the Central European uh, and Eastern European EU, mar- sorry, these EU markets, uh, how will they respond to that? Some, of course, are on the euro, others are not. So Slovakia, the Baltics, how would they respond compared to uh, those Central European EU non-euro countries? Well, Slovakia and the Baltics specifically have tried to, um, they, they've really talked about just going with Europe and their, they, them being core members of the EU. Uh, the other countries that are not uh, Eurozone members essentially, uh, however, have been trying to put off the adoption of the Euros. Uh, a lot of them have literally uh, put the issue on the, on the back burner, saying that they're not ready, they're not where their economies want, uh, where they want their eco- economies to be. However, they will have to adopt the euro uh, in it, uh, at some point sooner or, or later. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, they will remain outside of the core of the uh, EU, which will then impact uh, growth in the long term. However, this will galvanize uh, further populism in um, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, mm-hmm. and even Romania, mm-hmm. and there will be backlash against against this. Mm-hmm. Let me add here, Martin, that uh, possibly the C non-Eurozone countries might not have the option to oppose the reform because actually it will be voted by the 19 Eurozone members, and uh, especially France and Germany are very committed to implement this reform. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so, Athanasia, sort of uh, just sticking with you here. Do you think the EU wants to send a message then um, that Eurozone integration is indeed advancing uh, or that we are heading towards a sort of a two-speed EU? Um, and, and before answering that question, would you mind uh, defining two-speed EU, what that actually means? But I'm interested to hear uh, your answer on that. Yes. Um, so, yes, actually, Mark, that's, that's a good question uh, about the future of the EU. So we are actually currently seeing already a two-speed EU. So um, two-speed EU is that actually within EU we will have uh, uh, two, com- two kind of comps. There will be the one with the highest, um, uh, let's say, growth countries and the one with the lowest, uh, let's say, speed countries. Um, and uh, um, we are seeing it already, we're seeing this already, uh, without even uh, it being institutionalized. So uh, that, that's why I think that uh, this, of course, could be a risk for some businesses, but this could be also a business opportunity if we see a two-speed EU, uh, let's say, uh, structure going forward. And I would like to point here uh, that particularly uh, Southwestern Europe, I think that it would, um, let's say, enjoy additional investment from the EU. And that's why we are saying to our clients to keep on an eye on Southwestern Europe. And that's why we devoted our uh, latest report on Southwestern Europe as well. And I'm not saying this uh, only because I originally come from this region. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. We'll try to avoid the personal biases here. Um, <laughs> great. Uh, Martin, then what do you think what would be the effect on populism? Uh, well, if you refer to speed, uh, to speed Europe, um, mm-hmm. um, the, the effect will obviously be quite, quite uh, negative, again, in the, in the very long term. And Central Europe will definitely lose from this trend if it's left out of the ongoing process, because you see uh, investors moving their focus on Eurozone members and Southwestern Europe, and you see confidence strengthening their possible capital 
um, flows more towards the uh, that uh, first zone of, uh, of Europe. However, uh, what I think will happen is that eventually in the medium to long term populism uh, will, will, will initially strengthen, but then they will have to moderate their policies, not only to actually stay in government, to, but to continue to, keep, to reap the benefits uh, of the EU budget and just generally uh, staying in the EU. Uh, policy unpredictability will, however, remain. But the key point here is that also those uh, uh, those populist parties are not uh, not solidified in their position. Essentially, they can lose elections. They've lost local elections plenty of time, just as the, the most recent local elections in Poland. And they're uh, they're not that popular among uh, urban voters, and they actually perform quite badly. However, the EU will need to make on, on their uh, behalf, obviously, a greater effort to provide stability in the region and possibly be a bit more flexible, allow those currencies to make uh, those countries to, man to maintain their national currencies for a bit longer in order to prevent public uh, and populist backlash. Uh, but and this will actually help moderating things and helping those countries integrate into the EU further. Okay. Very good. Interesting. Uh, well, thank you both for your time. Uh, I, I think just to, to summarize, uh, I, it was worthwhile having this discussion because it, it helped uh, sort of diminish the amount of, you know, the panic, the sensationalism, a lot of the alarmism that we're consist we've been seeing consistently in headlines for the last, really the last three years or so. Um, and I feel like that's become half of our job here is talking to clients and have and, and reinterpreting headlines that they're seeing and all the panic and whatever newspaper of whatever major city that they're living in uh, that they're reading. Uh, and, and if you look historically, I, I think it's important to end on this more positive note. If you look at, you know, all the concern about Greece and all the apocalyptic scenarios over the last several years, which have generally been avoided. Now we're going to see Greece growing at a pretty nice rate next year, of course. Right. Um, and uh Looking at, say, Germany, um, you know, obviously we saw the AFD gain a lot of popularity uh, over time, but now that that popularity has waned a little bit, um, it, it's unclear how much farther they could develop in the coming years. Uh, but, you know, avoided the worst case scenario there as well. Likewise with France and the National Front in the 2017 elections, uh, the Netherlands, you know, the Dutch elections prior to that and earlier in uh, 2017. Uh, now, just this week, looking at you know the No Deal Brexit, it looks like they've made they've come to a, a pretty good point and are proceeding in the right direction. Maybe potentially lowering the potential for a No Deal Brexit to occur, uh, as we're seeing positive news come out of those talks. So, um, really, there's lots of reasons to be quite hopeful. So, I'm, I'm glad we had this discussion to uh, reconfirm that uh, in our in our clients' minds and um, and show how much. You know, potential the region still has, you know, over the next several years, strong, solid, quite predictable growth in major, major markets with, you know, lots of opportunities to offer. So um, so I think we'll, we'll leave it there uh, for today. Um, thank you very much again to, to both of you. Very insightful session, of course, shedding light on the risk of populism uh, for our clients operating in Europe. Um, so with that, uh, I'd like to close up there. As a reminder to our clients, you can speak with, with me, Athanasia, uh, or Martine, or any of the other uh, FSG analysts by sim simply reaching out via your client relationship manager directly. Uh, you can also access our reports on Western and Central Europe, as well as Russia CIS markets, uh, as well as our monthly market monitoring report on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging and developed markets.